to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Last time, we talked about how religion shaped women's lives in Tudor England and was a driving force in Catherine of Aragon's life and queenship. Now, let's see what happens when King Henry decides he wants to break from the Catholic Church and find himself a whole new wife. Grab your prayer book and be prepared to feel the urge to hit Henry VIII over the head with it. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Olivia, Laura, and Christy. My boss ladies, Amy, Annabelle, Elizabeth, Grace, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Michelle, Monique, Nuria, Rebecca, Sabrina, Sarah S., and Tanya. My adventuresses, Anna, Carlos, Emily, Helena, Iris, Jessica, Amber, Joe Marie, Kelly, Megan, Chris, Stephanie C, Stephanie F, Terry, and Alexis. My warrior queens, Lori, Alexis, Kate, June, Sloane, and Neve. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Samara, Katie, and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And my fabulous lady pharaohs, Sophie, and the three lovely Courtney's. Thank you so much to all of my patrons who are crucial in helping me keep the show going. I appreciate you more than I can say. For as little as $3 a month, patrons get access to exclusive bonus episodes, interviews with special guests, sneak peeks and early access, exclusive giveaways, contests, polls, behind-the-scenes glimpses, you name it. To find out more about it, just go to my website, theexplorespodcast.com. In the early years of his marriage to Catherine, Henry VIII is a devoted Catholic. It's said he attends up to six masses a day. Every night he goes to the Queen's chamber to hear the offices of Vespers and Compline. He even writes a pamphlet called A Defense of the Seven Sacraments Against Martin Luther, speaking out against what he sees as the heretical claims of the German man that will later be called the founder of the Protestant movement. In it, he writes about how when two people are joined in marriage, nothing should be able to part them, and that England should set forth the Pope's authority to the uttermost. All things he will regret putting into writing later. The Pope likes him so much that he gives Henry a new title, calling him the Defender of the Faith. Henry knows that the Catholic Church has some bad apples, and it sometimes abuses its power, but he also believes in it. If the church is threatened, then the monarchy is threatened. Right now, he has every reason to hold fast to his beliefs. Lutheranism concerns Catherine deeply, which is something that she and her husband bond over. It turns them into a theological team. While Henry publishes his tracts denouncing Luther's ideas, Catherine enlists her Spanish confessor, Alphonsus de Villasancta, to write some treatises also, which he dedicates to the woman he refers to as Defendress of the Faith. She is noted always for her religious devotion. 
Erasmus describes her as more pious than learned. Is that a backhanded compliment? And as religious and virtuous as words can express. She spends huge chunks of her day at prayer, attending devotions and praying in her private chambers. But her belief isn't just a private, personal matter. She's a queen, so it's public too. Tudor society expects their queen to display a certain amount of devotion. All women are considered moral leaders in their households, so Catherine must be a moral example to the country at large. And she does this extraordinarily well. Historian Michelle Beer says that Catherine of Aragon makes herself a successful queen consort by being good at building spiritual authority and moral capital. Some of the ways she builds this moral capital is through almsgiving and donations. Charity is often associated with women because of their responsibility for hospitality in Tudor society. In his book of the time, The Education of a Christian Woman, Juan Luis Vives says that wives, as managers of the household, should give generously to the poor and make sure their servants are properly taken care of. But queens are expected to participate in charity on a whole other level. From the records we have, we think that Catherine is giving between 160 and 190 pounds a year. And that doesn't even include the alms that come from Catherine's own privy purse, or ones given in her name by the king. And she's not just giving out money, she's also donating clothing, which is really valuable. Her accounts show her ordering clothes of linen and russet, and some shoes, for nine poor women. In March 1520, she buys 96 yards of cloth to make gowns for 35 women. If a queen buys you such a valuable present, you aren't likely to forget it in a hurry. Almsgiving is an important mark of Catherine's elite queenly status, but it's also a chance for her to interact with the people in a very particular way. The Royal Maundy is a prime example. Maundy Thursday, celebrated the day before Good Friday, has been around since the 14th century, celebrated by English royals by giving alms to poor men and women. This is a huge event, witnessed by both court and commoner. Henry goes to the royal chapel, where he hears mass, watches the altar scrubbed clean, and then he performs the pedalavium, or the ritual washing of poor people's feet. He gets down on his knees, albeit on a fancy cushion, and does an action meant to emulate the Last Supper when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. It's great optics for Henry, aligning himself with Jesus, and it reminds people that his kingly status is given to him by God. Catherine performs the pedalavium too for the female poor, publicly placing her on equal spiritual footing with her husband. It reminds the people that she too is an anointed consort. Plus, this washing of feet connects her with the common woman, which only cements their fond feelings toward her. Who knew that washing random feet could hold such potent public power? Henry certainly does. That's why, during their divorce crisis in 1534, he won't let Catherine hold her Mondi while under house arrest. In 1535, she insists, and her jailer writes to the king for instruction, because this is way above his pay grade. Henry decides that Catherine can hold her Mondi only if she does it as a royal widow, not as a queen. If she defies him, Henry instructs, She is to be told that she and all her officers, and such as receive it, will be guilty of high treason. That's intense. 
The Spanish ambassador at the time will write that Anne Boleyn, too, forbids any contact between Catherine and the poor because... The alms she has been accustomed to give have attracted the love of the people. So we see that queenly Mondes must have significant symbolic power. Catherine doesn't have an official position in the church, per se, but she is still involved in its workings and influences who gets money and when. She checks in with England's clerics by going on lots of pilgrimages. These oft-lengthy journeys aren't just casual road trips. They are a major undertaking. She's accompanied by an entourage and her substantial household as they travel between holy sites, touching religious relics, greeting monks, and paying their respects to local churchmen. They stay with local nobility as they go, making valuable connections. Though Catherine herself probably wouldn't call these networking opportunities, that's in huge part what they are. She supports members of the church, and so they continue to support and champion her. These trips endear her to the people, too. It allows them to see their queen and feel like they know her. They build her public image and serve as a prime piece of PR. They make it so it doesn't matter that she's Spanish. They consider her one of them. As an English ambassador, Sir John Wallop will write later, The queen was beloved, as if she had been the blood royal of England. Religion also lets Catherine do something no other woman in England would dare to, publicly tell her husband that he's wrong. Queenly intercession is a public act pulled by many queens throughout Europe. The king is law, but the queen is mercy, and thus she can ask for pardons to save lives when she wants. The thing to do is go down on her knees in a public place, asking the king to practice mercy. And at her request, he often does. On May 1st, 1517, several hundred Londoners riot, threatening the mayor of London and a cardinal with death. In response, Henry VIII demonstrates, Very great vengeance on the ringleaders. So, Queen Catherine intercedes on behalf of the approximately 400 still waiting execution. This most serene and most compassionate queen, with tears in her eyes and on her bended knees, obtained their pardon from his majesty. Catherine's position in England is unusual in early modern society. She's a foreign woman who outranks every man around her, you know, except for the king and she has access to real power. So she always has to walk a high wire between asserting her status as divinely ordained ruler, while also appearing to be everything a good wife and mother should be. We don't want to see her bossing her husband around. I mean, God forbid she act like, dare we even say it, Cleopatra. Her public piety goes a long way towards helping her do just that. For several years, Catherine and Henry seem happy in their marriage, indulging in lavish court entertainments and working together in matters of political and military policy. Two beautiful people on top of their game. Case in point, in 1513, when Henry goes off campaigning in France, he makes a 27-year-old Catherine regent and governess of England. That's right, she has the power to summon troops, appoint sheriffs, sign warrants, and get money from the treasurer. And then, when Scotsman James IV sacks some towns in northern England, she sends out an army to meet him. In fact, she's downright enthusiastic about this decision, writing in a letter that, My heart is very good to it. 
She sends soldiers, money, artillery, gunners, a fleet of eight ships, and supplies ranging from grain to beer and armor. Then, just like her mother before her, Catherine gets on a horse and marches toward the battle, while pregnant. Damn girl! But it's over before she can get there, and it's a huge victory for England. This turns out to be one of the greatest military victories of Henry's whole reign, and Catherine knows it. As she writes to Henry, To my thinking, this battle has been to your grace and all of your realm, the greatest honor that could be, and more than should you win all the crown of France. She wants to send Henry and James's body as a little look-we-won present, but her entourage tells her that maybe just sending his bloody coat might be better. As she writes to Henry, I could not send your grace the piece of the kings of Scots coat, which John Glynn now bringeth. In this your grace shall see how I can keep my promise, sending you for your banners a king's coat. I thought to send himself unto you, but our Englishman's heart would not suffer it. Later, Henry himself will reflect that Catherine was of course fully capable of carrying on a war. As fiercely as Queen Isabella, her mother had done in Spain. But Catherine is struggling to perform one of her most sacred, God-given prerogatives, having children. She is pregnant many times in the course of their marriage. Three of those pregnancies end in a miscarriage or stillbirth. Two of her newborns make it out into the world only to die in a matter of weeks. In 1515, after her third failed pregnancy, Catherine turns to God for guidance. She goes on a pilgrimage to the Holy House of Nazareth at Walsingham in North Norfolk, which holds a relic of the Virgin Mary's breast milk. She will visit this shrine four times during her queenship. In fact, these many pilgrimages tell us how heavily she feels the burden of her childbirth problems and communicates her anxieties about it to the kingdom at large. At last, on February 18, 1516, a living child is born and thrives, a daughter, Mary. A girl isn't exactly what they'd hoped for, but surely it's a sign of boys to come. But by the late 1520s, Henry is slipping away from Catherine. He badly needs an heir to shore up his dynasty, and he's beginning to think that his union with Catherine isn't going to give him one. And then his eye falls on one of Catherine's own ladies-in-waiting, the beguiling Anne Boleyn. Catherine hopes the infatuation will prove fleeting, as so many of them have, but it doesn't. And then Anne tells a besotted Henry that she has no interest in becoming his mistress. She will be his wife, or nothing at all. Of course, Henry can't just break up with Catherine. First, because the Catholic Church is a definite no on divorce. Henry starts talking about how he is sorely troubled by his conscience about his marriage to Catherine. After all, as Leviticus puts it, If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. They shall be childless. Maybe that's why they haven't had an heir, he says loudly to anyone who will listen. When his advisors gently remind him that, well, the Pope did give you permission and say that God was fine with it, Henry says that maybe the Pope was wrong. Oh my. And so begins a period where Catherine must endure a strange sort of public threesome. She is still queen, but Anne Boleyn is always there, always hovering. 
The tempestuous Henry is giving Catherine serious emotional whiplash. He'll take supper with her one night in her chamber, only to disappear the next day to spend some sexy time with Anne. For Catherine, this isn't just about preserving her marriage. She views its survival as inextricably tied to the Catholic Church's survival. Plus, it's no secret that Anne is a fervent religious reformer. And so Catherine isn't backing down, no matter the cost. The church gets involved, because of course they do, and they side with Catherine. The people do too, they love their queen. When she appears in public, they shout her name, wishing her victory over her enemies. She's especially loved by the ladies. If the matter were decided by women, a French ambassador reports, the king would lose the battle. Come on, Henry, read the room. But the king isn't giving up on what will come to be called his great matter. Maybe it's because he's just hot for Anne, but it could also be because of very real anxiety about his heir situation. Either way, Henry's not about to win any Exploress goodie points. In 1527, he and his advisors try to convince the Pope that the marriage was never legitimate because Catherine was once married to his brother Arthur. Catherine then appeals to Pope Clement VII herself, saying her marriage is valid because she went into it a virgin. I mean, haven't we already been over this? Henry's case for annulment isn't very strong politically either because the Pope has just surrendered to Catherine's nephew, who just so happens to be the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. He's just sacked Rome, and the Pope thinks it would be injudicious to alienate the Emperor's aunt. Things come to a head on June 21, 1529, when Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon appear in front of the Legatine Court at Blackfriars. Suddenly, the question of whether or not Catherine and Arthur ever slept together is a crucial one that could decide the religious fate of a nation. Arthur's former body servant testified, I made the said prince ready to bed, and with others conducted him, clad in his nightgown, unto the princess's bedchamber often and sundry times, when he entered and then continued all night. This is also where we learn about Arthur's boast about having spent the night in Spain. Remember, Catherine is sitting through all of this, having her sex life dissected for a pretty prestigious audience. But she holds firm, saying that she and Arthur shared a bed for just seven nights during their marriage. Her people say that he was quite sickly, not at all up for air-making. As one eyewitness will say in 1531, Arthur's limbs were so weak that he had never seen a man whose legs and other bits of his body were so small. Another attendant will testify that Francisca de Casaras, who was in charge of dressing and undressing the queen, and who she liked and confided in a lot, was looking sad and telling the other ladies that nothing had passed between Prince Arthur and his wife, which surprised everyone and made them laugh at him. Both the king and queen are given a chance to speak at this hearing. Henry says that all he really wants is for the court to prove his marriage valid, but he just knows it isn't. Catherine doesn't rail against his lies. Instead, she goes to her husband, falling to her knees in front of a fully packed courtroom, and uses every drop of moral capital she's garnered to make a desperate plea. Let's hear some of her speech. Sir... I beseech you for all the love that has been between us. 
and for the love of God, let me have justice. Take of me some pity and compassion, for I am a poor woman and a stranger born out of your dominion. I have been to you a true humble and obedient wife, ever comfortable to your will and pleasure, that never said or did anything to your contrary thereof, being always well-pleased and contented with all the things wherein you had any delight or deliance, whether it were in little or much. I never grouch in word or countenance or showed a visage of spark of discontent. I loved all those whom you loved, only for your sake, whether I had cause or no, and whether they were my friends or enemies. These twenty years or more I have been your true wife, and by me you have had diverse children, although it has pleased God to call them out of this world, which has been no default in me. When you had me at first, I take God to my judge. I was a true mate, without touch of man. And whether it be true or no, I put it to your conscience. If there be any just cause by the law that you can allege against me either of dishonesty or any other impediment to banish and put me from you, I am well content to depart to my great shame and dishonor. And if there be none, Then here, I most lowly beseech you, let me remain in my former state. I most humbly require you, in the way of charity and for the love of God, who is the just judge, to spare me the extremity of this new court until I may be advised what way and order my friends in Spain will advise me to take. And if you will not extend to me so much impartial favor. Your pleasure then be fulfilled. And to God, I commit my cause. Henry VIII tries to raise Catherine up twice during the speech, out of her posture of submission, but she won't budge. Despite all of her humble language, this act is one of clear defiance. It's pretty incredible, when you think about it, that this woman is able to use her moral authority to not only shame her husband, the king, but openly disagree with him. Nobody's putting her in any scold's bridle. And it's not just that she gets away with it. Many people admire her for it. None more so than the women of England. One of them, our powerful prophetess Elizabeth Barton, takes it a step further. She writes letters to the Pope himself, encouraging him to stand against Henry, going so far as to say that God will plague him if he doesn't rule in Catherine's favor. Barton leans on her good relationship with the king as well, speaking to him directly. She predicts that if he goes through with his plans, he will be overthrown, that he'll bring on wars and plagues. She even prophesizes his death, telling him that she had seen the particular place and spot destined to him in hell. Bold move, Elizabeth. But Henry is determined. When the Pope refuses to annul his first marriage, he decides to take matters into his own hands. His advisor, Thomas Cromwell, who is already all about reforming the way religion's done in England, is like, Hey yo, why don't you just break with the Catholic Church and form your own, man? Henry thinks this is a great idea. And thus begins the foundation-shaking English Reformation. God, 
There is a lot to say about the Reformation, both in Europe and England, but let's boil it down to its very simplest form. It's been bubbling away in Europe for quite a while now. Though most of Europe is staunchly Catholic, theologians such as Martin Luther in Germany and John Calvin in Switzerland have been protesting what they see as abuses in the Roman Church. This protesting is where we get the term Protestant from. You'll remember that Henry and Catherine were speaking out against Martin Luther's religious doctrine since very early in their reign. But now Henry has, well, reasons for wanting to break away from the Pope's authority, and there are lots of reformers in England who see this as a chance to make some change. They want to get rid of the worship of icons and see the Bible printed in English, not just Latin. That means parishioners could read and interpret it for themselves. This is radical stuff. Henry's buddy, Thomas, starts putting new reforms in motion. One of the biggest is that he dissolves all of the monasteries and nunneries in England. Between 1536 and 1540, every single abbey and priory, some 800 in total, are broken up. The Reformation's answer to those bereft nuns who find their whole lives turned upside down? Hey, ladies, no need to stress about it. Why don't you just toddle off and get married? Over time, the reforms get more and more aggressive. Cromwell reduces the number of saints' days, abolishes all lights before images, dissolves pilgrimage shrines, and even ends the veneration of icons. Say goodbye to your holy girdle, ladies. You're gonna have to take your chances without it. Churches are suddenly required to purchase English-language Bibles. Not all of England's women are going to take this lying down. In 1536, a group of women in Exeter go to the Priory of St. Nicholas and assault the workmen hired to dismantle the church's rood screen. It's said the women grab and carry the workers bodily out. Eventually, these changes will affect all church-going women. First of all, there's no more all-women seating. You'll be hanging out with your husband or father, not your friends, which means no more lady bonding at church. Instead, you'll be watched by the men of your family, you know, as always, ensuring you don't get up to anything suspicious. No more all-female guilds, either, which means less independence in female community building. Women may not have as many church chores to do, which could be seen as a good thing. But without vestments to dust and altar cloths to wash, women lose opportunities for parish participation and to engage in activities that cleanse their souls and bring them closer to God. There's also a new ideological emphasis on women's domesticity. Women are told to be silent and obedient, devoted to chores and childcare. Don't get me wrong, Protestants sing the praises of women, speaking to a kind of spiritual equality between the sexes. But it also talks a big game about males being the head within a marriage. Ladies, we all know you were created for your man's benefit, so you gotta listen and obey. The Protestant wedding service liturgy has the groom promising to love and to cherish his wife, while she promises to love, cherish, and to obey her husband. Okay. Protestantism also challenges the authority of the female mystics and prophets. Women like Elizabeth Barton will no longer hold such sway. But Protestantism does create certain opportunities for women. Here's Elizabeth. I mean, Protestantism to some extent, gives women even more of a stake in the in the church because one of the key doc doctrines of Protestantism is sola scriptura, which is you should go back to your original scriptures. So it's basically trying to throw out the later loss of the church fathers, the church teaching, say, no, no, just read the Bible. 
um, these are the scriptures, this is the word of God. And as part of that, they publish the scriptures in the vernacular. And while women are rarely taught classical languages in the period, only very, very high status women, most women read English. So if you've now got a translated Bible, you can read the scriptures for yourself and you can understand them and you can debate them. And this is really, really important to women. It becomes fashionable for wealthy, learned women to translate religious works themselves and publish them. Catherine Parr, Henry's sixth wife, who we'll spend more time with later, writes one of the first works published by a queen in England. And guess what? It's a book of prayers. None of this is an overnight change. Instead, it's like a slow-creeping moss, starting at the royal level and trickling down to the common folk as the years go on. But over the years, this Great Schism, as it's called, will create a kind of holy war in England, with people picking sides between Catholic and Protestant. It isn't just a scholarly debate amongst the high-ranking. It is fought on every level of society. It becomes a question not only of personal conviction, but a matter of life and death. It's no surprise that Catherine of Aragon is staunchly on the side of Catholicism. Plenty of other women are as well. Those who hold with the old ways help to keep it alive by hiding priests in their homes, creating a kind of religious underground. These women risk death if caught. But staunch Protestant women aren't necessarily safe either. Let's take a moment to meet a woman named Anne Askew. Anne is a well-educated noblewoman who grows up memorizing scripture. Then, King Henry passes an act in 1543 preventing all women, and men below the rank of gentlemen, from reading the Bible. So Anne decides to be a contrarian and start preaching herself. She, I mean, goes into church and sort of loudly preaches the Bible um, and is actively trying to convert people. Her conservative husband kicks her out for her audacity. She escalates the situation by petitioning for divorce. When it's denied by her local court, she goes to London. After all, if her king can get a divorce when it suits him, why can't she? Eventually, her public preaching leads to her arrest for heresy, and she's taken into the Tower of London. Someone puts her on a rack and tortures her the only record of a woman being tortured in the tower, to try and force her to give up the names of others like her. The lieutenant of the tower, horrified by this illegal interrogation, goes and tells Henry, who orders her return to her prison cell. But it's only a temporary reprieve. Anne has to be carried to the stake on a chair because of her injuries from racking. She is burned for heresy at just 25 years old. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Gloria in excelsis Deo. But let's get back to Catherine. In May of 1533, the Archbishop of Canterbury annuls her and Henry's marriage. It makes her, for the second time, a royal widow. To underscore her new title, Henry issues a proclamation that strips Catherine of the title of queen and requires all subjects to address her, humiliatingly, as Princess Dowager of Wales. But Catherine refuses to accept it. She continues to act, and believe herself to be, England's true queen. With some 24 years of public piety behind her, she's able to dig in her heels and subvert Henry's agenda without openly speaking against him. She makes it pretty tough for him and his representatives to sell the idea of Catherine being a widow at all. 
The lower and middle classes as a whole are fuming over it. It gets so bad that a member of the Venetian embassy writes that to get people to stop publicly mentioning Queen Catherine, Henry's government has to prohibit it under pain of death. That doesn't stop a lot of people from being disrespectful of Henry's new queen, Anne Boleyn. Authorities arrest one Margaret Chancellor after she publicly calls Anne a goggle-eyed whore. Margaret isn't the only one who gets in trouble for her opinions. Let's return to our prophetess, Elizabeth Barton. She has made it very clear that if Henry marries Anne, he will be dead within six months. And this very much sets the clock ticking because actually Henry does marry Anne Boleyn in January 1533 and he's still alive in July. And this is a real problem for Elizabeth. Um, she starts to backtrack and she says, actually, you know, I've misinterpreted. Actually, what God said is that he will no longer consider you king after six months. But really, the damage has been done because Henry is, you know, very hale and hearty and is not going anywhere. Her protestations have proven so destabilizing, though, that Henry starts trying to discredit her. How does he do it? With that tactic old as time, of course. He tells everyone she's lost her marbles. In 1533, she and her followers are arrested. In 1534, she is executed for treason, hung as a warning to all those who might speak out against Henry's new wife and his church. Catherine takes a more Christian outlook on her replacement. Pray for her, she is quoted as saying, because the time will come when you shall pity and lament her case. Catherine never publicly fights with Henry or stands with his opposition politically. Instead, she waits for Henry to realize the error of his ways, repent, and return to her, which, of course, he never does. He keeps her isolated, almost a prisoner. And when she continues to refuse to accept her fate and Henry's position, he takes all communication with their daughter away. And yet, to her dying day, the pious Catherine fervently stands by her convictions. Even Thomas Cromwell, that staunch reformer, has nothing but praise for Catherine. Nature wronged her in not making her a man, he says. But for her sex, she would have surpassed all the heroes of history. She believes with all her heart in the Catholic faith and in her marriage. So when she goes to God in 1536, she does it still a queen. listening. Please tell a friend about the show or rate and review it wherever you listen. You'll find show notes for this and every episode at my website, theexploresspodcast.com, which includes a full transcript, lots of images, and a list of my sources. You'll also find a link to my Patreon, which is a great way to support the show and keep it going. You can also find me on Instagram at theexploresspodcast and occasionally on Twitter and Facebook. A special thank you to Elizabeth Norton for time traveling with us. You can find her at her website, elizabethnorton.co.uk. She's written tons of great books on this era, so go and grab yourself one. So much love goes to my intern, Carly Quinn, without whom this episode would not have been possible. 
Much of the music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of the Tudor Consort, a choral group in New Zealand, as well as guitarist John Sales. Thank you, as always, to Mr. Explores, aka Paul Gablonski, for my theme music and logo, and to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Eva Folch, Chris at Naturally RP, Andy Cancun at Jenkins, and Baz at VoiceOver Elite. Thank you.